We had a little snafu with our uh, server this morning and accidentally deleted our last three messages and we are in the midst of re-uploading them but at the same time our AT&T router uh, decided to go on strike. So um, I just would like to tell you that maybe tomorrow check our website, look at those last couple messages. Uh, Wednesday night I could barely stand, some of you might have noticed that. Uh, and I was looking a couple times during the message if there was a polite place that I could throw up. <laughs> uh, apparently my body is not real happy with the intestinal parasites we picked up in Honduras. I had hoped for a symbiotic relationship where I fed them and they stayed calm, but uh, thus far there's a revolt going on inside my system. And having said that, when the Bible says within our weakness he's strong, I, I honestly don't think we've had a more anointed service than we had Wednesday night in a long time. Amen. Which just goes to prove what you do all of the time. God doesn't really need me. <laughs> right? Uh, but that message was called Barnaba. If you didn't hear it, uh, and you want to know my, my heart, uh, you want to know the heart of the ministry, Barnaba is a good message that you, you should download and listen to. If it's not there tonight, it'll be there by tomorrow if we have to go and press it upon the servers by hand. Right? Mm -hmm. Amen? Yeah. Uh, so let's pray and let, let's hop into the Word. And uh, Sound Booth, are y'all ready with stuff back there? I threw so much at them this morning. You know, y'all know me. I usually preach from a 3 by 5 index card at most, 4 or 5 scriptures. And, and I just preached from there. And this morning I gave them a book of notes. <laughs> Because for the first time in a long time, I thought, I would like people to be able to see what I'm talking about. So uh, we're going to pray and then we'll get going. Mighty God, Lord, we, we just ask for a word within this word. Lord God, that as, as you open my mouth to, to bring your word out of it, Lord, that an individual word for each person would rest in their heart. Mighty one, we ask for your revealed word in their lives. That they might be able to take their stand on the revelation that you give them. Lord God, one that comes from the heavens and not from men. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning is September 23rd. It's 2012. Our message is called Revealed Word. If you're taking notes, there's a notes section in your bulletin as well to help you do that. I just wanted to tell you that the Bible is awesome. I mean... There's no book like it, right? That's good enough, huh? The Bible is awesome. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a scripture that most people know. A lot of you can quote it. It says, all scriptures God breathed. The imagery here is that God breathed into Adam. And what happened to Adam when he was breathed into? He became a living being. In Hebrew, that word is nashuma. It means a violent blowing. It means that God... Uh, entered into Adam in a powerful way, something that could be heard and felt and sensed. And he became a living being. When the scripture says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, it literally means that the scripture was breathed out of God in the same way that you were. And when we want to know what Zeke thinks, we can ask Zeke. When we want to know what Brother Fred thinks, we can ask Brother Fred. Well, how do you interact with book? See, sometimes we have reduced the scripture to simply a book of rules. No different than you would walk into a, an attorney's office and you would see uh, legal documents. All uh, I mean, they always pose in the pictures with their law office behind them. This is so that they can consult a dry, dead standard. But the scripture is not presented as a dry, dead standard. 
It's presented as something that is living. We call it living because God uses it to speak into our lives. He's been doing it accurately for millennia. In John 4, the 10th verse, Jesus said it kind of like this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Over and over and over in the Older Testament, God is called the God of the living. We find that in the Newer Testament as well. But the Newer Testament goes a step further. It speaks of His Word as something that is alive, something that is active. Living water. Now, all water gives life, doesn't it? He was trying to distinguish it from ordinary water. A new kind of water that if she drank from, had the ability to fundamentally change who she is. He said it a different way in John 6. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Bread is meant to give life, but bread doesn't have a life of its own. In Jesus, we see the living, breathing Word of God. And you know what? He interacted with people. The Word of God still interacts with people. Have you ever done the scripture roulette, right? You open it and you go, Lord, I need a word. Jesus wept. What am I supposed to do with that? Then you turn a few pages. That couldn't have been the word for me. What is the word? What you do, do quickly. Speaking to Judas, you know, like, uh, I hope that's not the word for me, you know. I can't tell you if you get to 2 Samuel 10.9 or 2 Chronicles 7.14, you find some really funny ones. But don't look those up now. <laughs> Scripture roulette is not the way that we're supposed to interact with the Word. As we begin to develop a, a, a growing knowledge, a network of the character of God as revealed in His Word, His Spirit then draws from that. And He speaks to you. He causes His Word on a specific subject, on something maybe that's close to your heart this morning, to come alive to you in a new way. This is active, so much so that Hebrews 4 says it that way. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active. You can make that claim about any book, but you don't have the history of 2,000 millennia that shows that it's true. You know, have you ever gotten into reading the first Maybe the preface in your Bible and how the canon of Scripture was put together. It's disheartening. I mean, you find some yucky men participated in that. Just like there are yucky men that speak for Jesus today. And yet, somehow or another, through all of that, God is able to get His message out. Amen. This book has been changing people's lives for more than two millennia. So much so that when God thoroughly speaks to a man, when he invades your thoughts with something that's divine, it really can't be hidden. I would like to say that it's good if you have doubts occasionally about your salvation. One of the reasons that I think that it's good is because Romans 8.16 says his spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are a son of God. He'll testify with you. Every man, every woman in this building deserves that testimony. If you're going to walk with God and stake your eternity on something, we cannot rest it simply on what somebody else said about the Bible, what somebody else said about Jesus. How many of you know who Bo Jackson is? Look, only the guys. My wife does. Right? I remember Bo Jackson because at a time I was interested in athletics. You know, this was a man who weighed 240 pounds but ran a 4'2", 40. He broke the 4-3 uh, barrier. It was 4-2-9, I think. That's an amazing thing, right? I know that Bo Jackson liked to, uh, to jump rope with a two-inch chain 
Try that sometime. Wow. That's amazing. I know who Bo Jackson played for. I can give you some of his stats in college. I remember when he ran over Brian Bosworth and all but ended his career with the Seattle Seahawks. I, I, I really remember this guy, right? But you know what? I don't know him. And if he walked in this room right now, beyond those stats, we wouldn't have much of a relationship. Yet I could sit around a table and talk with you about Bo Jackson's highlights, could talk to you about the commercials he made, how he really began a whole uh, idea of cross-training and athletics. I, I could tell you all kinds of things about him, and you may even have the impression I must, must know Bo Jackson. Of course, I would not know Bo Jackson. Yeah? This, unfortunately, is how much of the world is with Jesus. They know his highlights. They know his statistics. But they don't know him. And we are missing the living, breathing, active part of Christianity. That is more than you know Jesus died on a cross. Suddenly you feel like he died in your place. It's more than you know he offers the forgiveness of sins. You feel personally released from yours. You feel like a new person. This is the part of Christianity that unfortunately cannot be faked. And since it cannot be faked, we often don't draw the line here. We like to simply have points to ascend to. And if we have those points to ascend to, then we call it all good. But what if we're denying somebody the opportunity to wrestle with their salvation, to work it out with fear and trembling, so that the end of the process is that they know that they know that they know they belong to Jesus and He belongs to them, and their whole life's wrapped up in it. I didn't have to guess that Matthew Pirro was born again. I was on the other side of the fence at that time. You know, One of the first things that happened was I loved him and I disdained. Yeah. I, I missed my friend, but I also was so terribly convicted that he would not participate in the things we had always participated in that I felt as if his life said something about me. It made me angry. I used to step on his hands in the football pile getting up, right? I, I, I said and did everything I could to intimidate him, right? Push him around. I had ugly names for him. All because I was wrestling with the living and active Word of God that was convicting me as a sinner. Guys, we cannot shortcut this process. If some man had walked up to me and said, now you were baptized when you were such and such age and you know that you're saved, you know, that wouldn't be enough. That would not be enough. In fact, it may actually inoculate me from what God was trying to do. I'd like to share with you 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.23 says it this way. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. I want you to hear this about the enduring Word of God. When God speaks to a man, when it's truly the Lord, you don't forget it the next week. It doesn't because... How many times have you sat, especially in the crazy charismatic zoo, how many times have you heard someone go, you know, um, I had a dream. And, and I'm not sure, but I think that this was God. And a few minutes later, somebody's kid's going, he watched the movie RoboCop last night, you know. And his dream sounds like that. And then two months later, you say, hey, brother, you remember that dream that you had that was from God? Tell me about it again. And they can go nowhere with it. This is flake. It's cornflakes. It's, it's, it, there's nothing of Jesus in it. When God himself reveals something to a man, it endures. Friends, you could convince me of all kind of things. You know, uh, somewhere right now I'm, I'm caught between maybe a libertarian at home and a republican abroad. 
but you might be able to convince me of another political philosophy. You might be able to convince me uh, that diesels are the way to go, or, or uh, that we should have solar panels on our roof. You might be able to convince me of a lot of things. You will never convince me that God did not speak to me in 1993. Because when He puts His Word in you, it endures. It endures, and it's supposed to. It is imperishable seed. Now, I have wavered from time to time, but that calling, that word, never wavered. Amen. It is the rock that was higher than I. Amen. It is what I've taken my stand on. It is what pulled me out of the slimy pit. And friends, I want everybody to have it. Amen. I want everybody to have that moment in time. The idea that says that it may not be necessary. Well, if you want to endure, you better have an enduring word. I'd like to bring up an idea that is maybe juxtaposed to our law book setting. If we don't interact with the Word in a living way, if we know what it says and what people say about it, but have not heard the Spirit speaking through it on a given subject, we're essentially directionless. You know all there is to know about God, but you don't have any idea what He says about you or your life. For instance, let's cover some things that the Bible does not tell you. Does everybody believe that the Bible's inspired? Yes. Most of you in here believe that. I, I believe in a, in a concept called verbal plenary inspiration. I think literally every thought, every letter is inspired. Amen. Having said that, I can find nowhere in these 66 books that the Bible told me which person to marry. I mean, did y'all see Jennifer's name written somewhere in the Word? Is there a verse I missed that said, Eric Stevens shall marry Jennifer? How about where to go to church? Where does the Bible tell you? Uh, 2,000 years into the future, there will be a Presbyterian church, there will be a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, as many kinds of churches as there are colors of the rainbow and many, many more, and I want you to go to this one. It doesn't say that, does it? How, how about where to live? Now, the Bible teaches that He set certain boundaries for us, that He determined the times and places that we would live. You can find that in Acts 17, but have you found a verse that says, Jorge shall from this point forward live in the a municipality of Houston? Probably not. How about what occupation to be in? So how do men choose these things then? It has to be revealed, friends. There's only one way that you find out God's will about these things. And people that just say, hey, hey, man, let the Bible be your guide. You wonder whether they've ever, ever actually tried that. Lord, here's your word. Now what do I need to do for a living? What verse are you going to find that tells you what to do for a living? And if you did find that verse, what happens to Brandon when he reads it? And what happens to Jan when she reads it? Well, what happens... If the verse says you'll be a woman's volleyball player and Brandon reads it. <laughs> See, in a law book, you can have fixed things that never move, but the word is not fixed in that way. It is living and active so that when Brandon is reading a verse about God's goodness, even on another subject, the Lord is able to speak to him. You like to relate to people? This is what I would like you to do right now. And you know what? When he's 50, it might be different than when he's 20. This is living and active. You adjust to the Word, and the Word, in some sense, although it's immovable, adjusts to you because it's able to speak to you at different points in your life in different ways. I can tell you in my life, I've even held certain convictions for a time period that were important and later found out my understanding of that conviction was not right, and yet I can still see that God worked through it. 
sometimes you move the boundary stones very, very close when, when you're prone to liberties. Right? And then later as you mature, you might find out you put the boundary stone too close, but it served you well to do so. Are you following me here? Okay. So the Word is living. There are things that need to be revealed. You can find in Genesis 35... Uh, it's going to be on your screen. You, I'm going to get to a text in a minute, and we'll camp there. But this morning, I wanted to put a few on the screen because I'm going to cover a lot of Scripture. In Genesis 35, 7, it says, There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, uh, because it was there that God revealed himself to him. What an interesting concept. Now, many of you who are familiar with the story told earlier in Genesis say, uh, Jacob laid his head on a stone, right? And as he dreamed, he dreamed a dream of a, a stairway into heaven, Led Zeppelin, right? No, <laughs> and he called that place Bethel, house of God. And so we associate the stairway to heaven with the house of God. Do you see how this says it? It was there that God revealed himself to him, and that became the house of God. There was a relationship between the revelation of the character of God and the place where God lived. See, to Jacob, since he understood God there, since God revealed part of his character to him, Jacob called that the house of God. We come to abide with him and him with us when we can see into his character, some direction in our life. These were pivotal moments in this man's life. He wanted to know what was going to happen. He's trying to strike a bargain with the Almighty God. Hey, look, I'll tithe to you. Uh, if, if you see me there and back, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. It's kind of jailhouse religion, right? Of course, there is no other kind. All of us were in trouble. All of us were convicted. But somewhere his character began to be revealed to us, and God builds his house in you on that. Actually, Peter says that you are stones being built into a, a spiritual dwelling. But the way that you became that living stone was to have some new insight of God's character. How many of you before you were Christians knew that Jesus was the Son of God? Knew that He was raised on the third day? Knew uh, that the Bible was the inspired Word? I knew all of those things, and, and so do every demon in hell. Hmm. Dustin used to wear a shirt all the time. I think he finally killed it while he was uh, working with Zeke over concrete. said five out of five demons believe Jesus is the Lord. It's true. James says it's true. He doesn't do a thing for them. The living Word has got to enter our life in an enduring way. And when that happens, nothing stands against it. Deuteronomy 29 is one of my favorites. This is one worth starring, circling, highlighting, whatever you like. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children for how long? They belong to you and who else? See, what God pours into Eric's life, I now have responsibility for, ownership of. I have... Uh, I have use of it. My job is then to impress that upon my child. If you have fallen into the uh, popular free-thinking idea that you'll simply let your children choose for themselves, you need to know that yetzer ra, the evil inclination in a child, will cause them 100% of the time to choose wrong. While your children live with you, leave them no choice but to serve God. Build in them such a foundation such an overwhelming witness of God that they literally never have a day where they question whether God is or is not because He's all they've ever known. And then, as they reach an age of accountability and then final autonomy, God will give them an enduring word of their own. But it's your job to give it to them now, not somebody else's. Look at Isaiah 65.1. 
I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. Friends, that's us. We are the nation, uh, um, the Goyim, the many peoples of the world that were not necessarily looking for God, but He chose to reveal Himself to us. In that revelation comes life-changing power. In that revelation comes the life that is really life. And every human being has a shot at it. He trusted first Israel, and then what He gave Israel, He's made available for the whole world. Even people who were not looking for Him keep bumping into this revelation. When we move on from Isaiah 65, it's our last one on the subject. It's just a, it's Daniel 2. It's one of my favorites just because of the way it says it. In the 2.29, As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Did you hear what Daniel called God? The revealer of mysteries. Maybe today you're, you're just all in knots trying to make a decision. Maybe today you're thinking about a job that would take you somewhere else. Or you're considering a change in church. You're considering a change somewhere in your life and you don't know what to do. And you weigh the pros and the cons and you're at a stalemate. You begin to look at it logically, rationally, all of the ways that you are capable of doing it and you don't know what to do. Maybe even the pros outweigh the cons, but you're just not settled somewhere because you've been taught now in Jesus, we don't make our decisions that way. What do you do? We have to have a living, breathing relationship with the Lord. We can't rely on some preacher to tell us what to do. He's going to give an account for his own life, and you'll give an account for yours. At best, the preacher's job is to tell you there is a revealer of mysteries. He's no respecter of men. He doesn't reveal things to men like Daniel because they're wiser than other men. He reveals them because... He's merciful and we need it. Seek Him. Everyone who seeks finds. Every Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open it, I will come in, He said in Revelation. Over and over and over, those who seek will find. Amen. Then how do we have so many people walking around with kind of a general knowledge of the Word, but not a specific knowledge of the Word in them, the Word for them? It's because we're too lazy to seek Him. It's just so much easier to buy someone else's book who has already saw it and find out what God told them. But the problem with that is it's what God told them. Look, I, I love David Platt. I love that book. Everybody know I think I bought all of you a copy of it, right? I, I, I don't know if John Piper would like me, but I love his book, Wartime. I, I am just sold out is all get out for lots of authors. But if we have them hear from God for us, why did we ever leave the Catholic Church? Huh? Because the Catholic Church is the universal embodiment of wisdom with the vicar of Christ on earth, right? And his word is beyond contestation when he speaks ex cathedra. Why be protestant if you want a man ultimately to hear from God for you and dictate to you what you must do? We don't think through these things sometimes. We just think about what's most expedient. I'm telling you it is worth wrestling with. I'm telling you that the more you wrestle with it, you don't find all of the answers. Sometimes you find more questions. Lord, if that's true, then what about this? And what about that? 
and this over here. And it makes your life a glorious exploration of the kingdom of God. That is a beautiful thing. It's to the glory of God to conceal a matter, the proverb says. It's to the glory of kings to search it out. How does God find out who is kingly among the people? He hides Himself, His glory in the creation everywhere. The whole creation is covered with His glory, Isaiah said. But the knowledge of that glory is something that has to be sought out. And you find it. You find it sometimes when you're ministering to a little boy in a foreign country. And you feel the Lord speak through you. And you go, there it is. Sometimes when you walk into a setting and you think you had something like deja vu, except you're filled with a divine sense of purpose. And you go, there it is. Sometimes it's you're reading what the Greeks call logos and it becomes rhema. You're reading something on the, work, on the page and suddenly it speaks to you in a way that it didn't before. Matthew 7.21 did that to me. So did 1 John uh, 1.3-5. through 5. They jumped off the page to me in a way that they never had before and they will never be the same again. That will endure as long as I endure because God put His seed inside of me. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Y'all can all turn to this one. You're not tired, huh? No. Am I boring you already? No. I mean, Emlyn's the only one who's allowed to be sleeping right now. Look, I can't tell somebody else's story. I can only tell you what happened to me, and I'd like to confess. I've made this confession since 1993. If the Lord did not speak to me that day in my bedroom in such a powerful way, I'd be just as lost as any other man. But he did speak to me. And it has made everything different ever since. And it has not mattered whether jobs were on the line, whether my life was on the line, health was on the line, money was on the line. That enduring word in me bears a witness. And I have weeks, friends, days and weeks, just like anybody else. From Wednesday till uh, yesterday, I couldn't stand up for more than about an hour at a time. It's funny the thoughts that go through your mind hearing those things, you know? You have parasites in your body from a foreign country. You start evaluating whether the trip was worth it. All those kind of things, right? You start having crazy thoughts. But you know what's right there to compete with them? These stepping stones in my life where the Lord spoke to me and it changed everything. And it's like I, I get spun around for a while and I can't see straight. And I go, wait a minute, there's true north. I remember the day the Lord told me that this was about him and not about me. Friends, everybody ought to have that or you have no moral compass. You simply have a collection of rules. Come on, somebody say amen. 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 All right, Hebrews 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's asking an awful lot, isn't it? Sure of something that is hoped for, certain of something that you cannot see. You know, this was always held up as the definition of faith. The problem is the people who most need have faith defined for them, newer believers who are learning to experience this have no idea what this means. And I had no idea what it means. Lord, you want me to be sure of what? You want me to be certain of what? I don't understand that. I'm, I was certain that the Word was true before I was born again. I was sure that Jesus was returning before I was born again. How can I be sure of what I hope for and certain of what I do not see unless this book says something specifically to me? Are you hearing me? Yes. You can be sure that Mark Twain wrote an accurate description of the South in the 1800s. That does not make you Mark Twain. It does not put you in his story. Intellectually acknowledging this or having some form of assent 
does nothing for us. But when He speaks something to you, then suddenly, for the first time in our lives, we can be sure of it even if we don't see it. We can be certain. We know where our hope is, and it is enduring, friends. It's enduring in a way that nobody can steal from you. His own Spirit is inside you bearing witness. Somebody turn to Romans 10, 17. Read it out, Brandon. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the Word of Christ. Come on now. Very few times do I prefer the King James, but it's just easier to remember. Hearing comes by the Word of God and... I didn't get it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. The idea here is that if God speaks something to someone, if He speaks a message to them, whatever the message may be, God's spoken Word to the person, this gives us a chance to put our trust in it. It gives us a chance to be sure that this is our hope. It gives us a chance to be certain of what we cannot see. But how do you do that if He has not spoken to you? Well, at best, you could just accept a list of facts. But we've already said, even demons do that. We've already acknowledged that many people in the room, just like me, ascribe to all of those facts before we were ever Christians. So what changed? What changed is the message was anointed from on high. It pierced my intellect. Something happened, and it went deeper than that. It exploded inside of my life in a way that filled my life. It was the little rock cut out of the mountain that filled the whole earth. It was the yeast that worked its way through the whole batch of dough. How many of you spent a time, I'm not going to ask how many are now, how many of you spent a, a sincere time in your life trying to be a better person? You know, there was a time when I, I did push-ups every time I, I, I would say a curse word. And I did that because I knew it was wrong to say curse words. I knew the Bible said it was wrong. I knew it was inconsistent with being a Christian. I could do literally 100 push-ups without stopping, but I could not control my tongue. It's amazing. James is true. And I knew James was true, but it didn't give me any power over sin. You know, I, I tried to clean up my life. I'd break up with my girlfriend sometimes out of guilt. Sometimes I, I would uh, try to change my social environment, throw things away. I'm going to be a good boy and follow Jesus, right? Except it never lasted because he had not spoken to me. Come on now. In this room, there are people, I can see it in some of your eyes. There are people in this room right now that are just trying to be good people. I mean, you don't really know what this whole born again thing is. You've heard about it. You've heard it mentioned. But what you're really doing is just trying to clean up your life, trying to be good, you know? When something is born in you of imperishable seed, everyone will know. You couldn't hide it if you wanted to. It, it's suddenly filling your life. It's compelling you to make changes that are not guilt-driven. They're passion-driven. The Word says you must be born again. How scary is it that we could sit in churches for decades and not actually be born again? You know, we could blame preachers all day long, and I, I'm in that camp. I like to blame them. I do. I do. I have nothing upsets me more than the limp-wristed preaching that we see everywhere. I mean, it, it is ridiculous. They've, they've made God a means to financial gain. The Torah has become a shovel to dig with. It's ridiculous. Having said that, 
Every man has a responsibility themselves to wrestle with these things, don't they? Praise God that some of you are brave enough to do that. When we worshiped in here today, I felt God's sense of approval. Didn't you? Now, look, let's get beyond whether we clap our hands, whether we raise them, whether we dance, whether we run, whether we speak in tongues, prophesy, do, don't. I don't care about any of that. Ask yourself one question. Did your spirit feel something different in here today? This is proof that God can speak a message to any man who is willing. And then, if God is speaking to every other person in the room, you feel something. Maybe you can't put it into words, but it almost brings tears to your eyes. Every other person. And you're sitting there thinking about football. You need to ask what's wrong with you, not what's wrong with everyone else around you. Are you hearing me? The living God's call has gone out to all of the earth, to every nation. He's revealing himself even to people that didn't ask for him. It's our turn to respond, friends. I never understood what faith was by the Romans 11 definition. I'm sorry, Hebrews 11. Turn with me to Romans 4, and we'll get to the first scripture that made sense to me. Now, what I'm doing is giving you a pearl. Now, it may not be a pearl to you. You know, have you noticed this about art, what one man apprises another man finds foolish? Like, I'm just going to be honest. Some of the most classical pieces of art, the most uh, celebrated in all of history, I think look retarded. I, I mean... Yeah. It just looks to me like, you know, somebody tied a paintbrush to a donkey's tail and put paint on it, you know? Said, go, go at it, there's flies, get rid of them. And the fact that everybody can stand and stare and just admire the depth and the contrast and what the, what the artist is really seeing, you know, it just amazes me. I often think, what if that was, you know, his child that did that and left it there and his name just happened to be on the canvas? Or have you ever walked by in Walmart and see everybody staring at a painting? Not a painting, a poster. And at the bottom it says this is not one of those images that comes off of the page. But everybody's still staring at it, waiting for it to happen. I, I don't know why, but for some reason you can look at the Word of God and it say one thing to uh, Jacob and another thing to Brad. And, and you're reading the same passage. And you know what? Sometimes it's because one person is obviously wrong. <laughs> and the other's right. But more often than not, it's more like a 70-sided stone. The more you turn, the more brilliant it becomes. This is the way the Jews taught to look at the Word. I'd like to invite you to a way I look at Romans 4. Is that fair? I'm going to go ahead and admit up front, it may not be as pretty to you turned in this direction as it is to me, but it changed my life. So in Romans 4, starting verse 18, and uh, we get, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. See, God gave him a word. Your offspring are going to be like the stars in the heaven and the sand on the seashore. And what lined up against him? Everything. Against all hope, he in hope believed that. God spoke to Abraham. And so he could place his hope in it. Without weakening in his faith, or another way to say that is trust. Without weakening in his trust, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This was the first time I understood what faith is. It's when God says something to you from His Word or otherwise, as long as it lines up with the Word. Like, so shall your offspring be. 
And then no matter what lines up against it, no matter whether your body is capable of carrying it out, your, your uh, eternal uh, spouse's body is capable of carrying it out or not, makes no difference because God said it. And you know He has the power to perform it. And you live your life chasing that. That's the first time I understood of being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I saw it in the life of Abraham. So in my life, when I said, Lord, change me, and when he began to speak to me some things that would be in my life, I immediately set my whole life on that course. The only unhappy moments I really have is when I realized I got my eye off of that prize and was fascinated with something else for a few moments. This was the all-consuming promise in my life. Something that I could set everything on. Every human being should have that. You know why? You're God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The revealed word is everything, friends. And it's not enough for you to have my revealed word. You need your own. Again, who to marry, where to go to church, where to live, what my occupation should be. All of these are areas that we must hear the word of Christ in order to be sure or certain so that we can cut against our circumstances without weakening in our trust, but rather being strengthened and persuaded that God will do what He has promised us. Now, I've been preaching some 30 minutes. This is usually, I mean, today, this is, you're hitting the parking lot about now, right? There's a pastor standing in the front. He's greeting people who are new in the church or are moving their letter, whatever that is. And, uh, and everybody else is streaming out. You're looking for a place to eat. I'd like to tell you there's a second half of the message. Would you like to hear the second half? Yeah. You don't have to pay $19.99. You know, it's not a trick. But I tell you, the second half of the message, to be able to relate it to the first, to properly understand it, I need to set the historical context. Now, you have to forgive me for this. I spent a lot of time sick this week. And while that happens, I, I, I had time to think. And that's, that's a dangerous thing for you guys. And you have to know that before Jesus changed my life, what I wanted to do was be a history teacher and, uh, and a football coach, right? Mostly because who else gets to wear those weird shorts? You know? <laughs> and um, so when I set the historical context for you, it's going to sound a little bit like a history lesson and, and not so much like I'm preaching. And you, you, you'll be able to bear with me for a few minutes. Is that okay, Rick? If Rick says it's okay, then, then it's okay. So we're going to roll back the clock to 700 to 800 B.C. Is that fair enough? Yes. It's difficult to think about the world at that time, but in 700 to 800 B.C., the prophet Elijah is walking the earth to put uh, this story in the biblical story. By the way, when you see the word his story, it would be best if you actually thought of history as his story. World events are taking place, and we call that history, and God is manipulating those world events to tell a specific story. So we're now between 700 and 800 B.C., and the founding of Rome is occurring, at least according to their mythology. Now, when you read about the mythology of nations, um, sometimes it's not true, right? Did George Washington really chop down a cherry tree? Did he skip his coins across the Potomac? I don't know. But these are stories that we chose, we elected to keep as a part of the narrative of America, right? Because they say something about us. They are, our first leaders say something about us. Well, the narrative about Rome starts with a woman named Rhea Silva. She's in the pantheon of Roman gods. And Rhea Silva, uh, oh yes, this is her picture. 
Rhea Silva was apprised as a virgin. Now, one of the things that Rome liked to apprise uh, about themselves was that they, their women were more chaste. Now, history hasn't told us that, but the ideal Roman woman was chaste. She was uh, conservative. Now, Rhea Silva was raped by the god of war. The god of war's name is Mars. Yes, you see him pictured there. And after he raped her, she gave birth to twins, Romulus and Ramus. Romulus and Ramus were nursed by two, uh, they were two children nursed by a she-wolf. This is the story that Rome tells about itself. We actually took this picture in Romania, uh, in a city square. It was uh, Blaj is where that was taken. Some of you were there. I just found it was interesting that uh, Blaj, Romania, wanted to be associated with this event. So these two children, that's a better picture of them, these two children are, uh, are being raised because Rhea Silva was later murdered by Mars. He buried her alive. So uh, if you're thinking back before Romulus and Remus as a Roman, your mother was the most chaste of all women. Her only sexual act was to be raped. And your father, as disgusting as this behavior was towards your mother, uh, he was the most violent, most powerful uh, most uh, potent male on the planet. This is how they thought of it. An interesting mixture for a nation, huh? Our women are the best, our guys are the best, and they don't need to necessarily get along. I mean, that is an interesting uh, thing, huh? So these two boys grow up with the life of a shepherd. They had kind of a surrogate father. We won't get into that. They grew up as, as shepherds, but they were supposed to have been nursed uh, and sustained by a she-wolf. And what happens from here... Uh, Roman history goes on to tell us that Romulus killed Remus. Uh, he killed his brother over a dispute on which mountain range Rome would be set on. How interesting that Rome sits on seven hills. Uh, you ask Dave Hunt and some other writers what they think about that. But they fought to the death two shepherds that were nursed by a she-wolf, kind of like wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, they fought to the death over where to place a city. And, of course, Romulus won. This is why we get Rome. You fast forward to the most famous Roman emperor that you might know. Okay, I told you a little bit about their origins to tell you what they apprise, what, what they aspire to. This guy, uh, Julius Caesar, somewhere around 44 B.C., uh, runs into a little problem with a guy named Brutus, right? Uh, we get the great statement in the Ides of March about A2 Brute, where he gets, gets stabbed. Well, when this happens... Oh, yeah, Brutus. Not this Brutus. This is Brutus Beefcake. Uh, when I was a kid, he was a popular wrestler. Nobody knows why. Uh, this guy, Brutus, uh, killed Julius Caesar. And when he did, the poets said, you know who he is, don't you? No, that's before your time? All right, we just have to have an informal survey. Who knows who Brutus Beefcake is? The barber. You know what it is? This is everybody who is in seventh grade in the late 80s. That's, that's, that's what that is. Uh, in any case, so Julius Caesar, uh, he dies at, at Brutus's hands, and in 44 B.C., it is said that a comet appeared. So the, uh, the Roman poets said that he ascended into the heavens. You can move to the next slide here. And... Uh, what you see around that time in the propaganda of the day, the, um, the only commercials they had is, look, 
You may not walk past a certain billboard, but every one of you at some point interacts with money. Well, the Romans were smart. When they wanted to get a message out to everyone, they simply stamped it on coins and said, we won't accept a coin that doesn't have that phrase on it. So what you see here on the left is the bust of Julius Caesar. And uh, what you see on the right says, son of Mars, or, or that'd be another way to say son of God. They began to popularize the idea that he ascended into heavens and that he was a god, that he was deity, and it showed up on their money. Now, did every Roman believe that? Of course not. But if you hear it long enough, it becomes part of your body of facts. Just like not everybody really acts on the idea they believe Jesus is Lord. But many people believe he's Lord, he's not their personal Lord, right? You can move forward from that. So what happens here is when he's killed, he becomes deified. And then the, the Caesar family tree is kind of awkward, and I won't go through all of that. But Julius Caesar, he had, he had daughters, and he needed a male heir. So through his sister, who history calls Julia Minor, uh, he had a nephew. And that nephew's name was Octavian. So having no son, Caesar names Octavian, his nephew, as his heir, and thus the son of Caesar. Now Caesar at this point is deified. There's a cult of imperial worship, and I gotta tell you, they had some really sick stuff. They covered each other in, in human blood uh, to be reborn. A lot of really strange things that kind of hearken to the other side of the world in Aztec and Mayan rituals and Incan rituals. Uh, we can move on from here. So now we have from Caesar, to a guy named Octavian. Now when Octavian is uh, a nephew, I don't know if y'all can see this, but Octavian is this guy on the right. An attractive man? No, no really not. Uh, the guy on the left is Mark Antony. Now you know Mark Antony had a famous love affair with who? Cleopatra. Cleopatra, right? I mean Mark Antony goes down in history as the consummate soldier gentleman, right? I mean he is... Uh, world-renowned as a lover. He's world-renowned as a valiant soldier. If you had to guess, if there was going to be a war between two men, Mark Antony and Octavian, just looking at their pictures on those coins, which one would you think would win? Mark Antony. The whole world was betting on Mark Antony, but Mark Antony did not win. So we have Caesar who gives up his power through death, and we are moving now to the heir that he named but was challenged by Mark Antony. And there is a war that is going on with that. And Mark Antony loses. You can go to the next slide. So when he loses, we have an interesting coin that shows up. This is Augustus and Divine Julius. Immediately, somewhere around 27 BC, they started minting coins that said Augustus. They changed his name from Octavian to Augustus because, I mean, Octavian is not a great name. But Augustus means the, the revered one, the august one, the worshipped one. And Augustus, the name given to him by, by the Senate, after all, he was, he was the son and the heir of Julius Caesar, who was already defined. You know what this begins to do? It begins to popularize Augustus Caesar as the son of God. Now, that's an interesting thing, Augustus Caesar, the son of God. You can move forward, Joy. And it's, it's interesting because... His figure starts to change and all of his bust. He starts to look more like the consummate Roman instead of the kind of squirrely, pasty, Ichabod Crane-looking fellow he was before that. Uh, his shoulders got wider. His cheeks got more defined. His nose got smaller. It's a funny thing how people will make the image of God into something that is more appealing 
to them. But if they, I guess Rome decided if we have to worship this guy as the Son of God, we, we want to at least have a good look at him. Like, like in our Jesus movies, right? We choose men like Jeffrey Hunter. We choose whoever we can find that has flowing blonde hair and blue eyes and looks nothing like Jesus would look, right? Because, I mean, if we have to worship him, right, he might as well be good looking. When he puts his word in you, you won't care whether it was fat and buck-toothed. You won't, because you know who he is. What do you think the word says when it says he had no beauty or majesty to draw men to him? So, so back to Rome, Augustus Caesar, the son of God. You can move forward, Joy. The political propaganda of the day from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. is that songs, poems, and murals began to appear all over the Roman world, and they all began to have one message. The message was uh, branding in today's marketing terms. Everywhere it said, Augustus Caesar, son of God. They also began to portray Rome where he sat as the light on a hill or city on a hill. Augustus was said to have brought universal peace and joy to men. Now, I don't want to talk about the word universal today, but look that up sometimes, see how you'd say it in Latin. So this idea, universal peace and joy to men, have you heard the term in history, Pax Romana? Pax Romana is the thousand years where Rome was supposed to have brought order to the world. Do you know who first espoused that idea? Augustus Caesar said that at his birth, when he was born as the Son of God, he came to bring peace on earth. And looking backwards... Historians say, ah, from about Augustus' time, for a thousand years forward, the Pax Romana was there. Rome ruled the world. Well, the way that that was announced was his birth was celebrated with 12 days of Advent. 12 days in December where they celebrated the birth of the Son of God, Augustus Caesar, and the thousand year or millennial reign he would bring. Are you beginning to smell some counterfeit here? How interesting that the second chapter of Luke begins by saying, now in the time of Caesar Augustus, Jesus was born. See, he was not born in a vacuum. He was not born in the midst of Christianity, right? He was born in a rich milieu of uh, religious heritage with competing imagery all around him. The secularist hears these phrases and goes, you know what? I think that Christianity ripped off Roman slogans. And I think it's, it's a lot different. I think the prince of the power of the air knew what was coming. He tried to, to present his counterfeit. And I think the gospel writers were so bold that they could challenge it openly, even at the cost of their lives. Does anybody recognize this word? There is no name under heaven by which men must be saved except Augustus. That appeared on walls. It appeared, appeared in mosaics all over the Roman Empire. There is no name in which salvation could occur except Augustus. Augustus. How bold is it then in Acts 4.12 when the uh, apostle says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men must be saved. That is amazing, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken, that's Peter speaking there. Did Peter have a revealed word in his life? See, if you're going to stand up to the whole Roman Empire and thus the whole world, and you're going to say, no, they're wrong. I know whose name salvation is found in. It better be more than a collection of facts to you, huh? We move to the next slide. Uh, this, is, this is where we get into the Bible narrative. Okay, I told you all of the Roman history, and maybe I belabored it. I'm sorry if I, if I bored you. Getting to Herod, 
Now, Herod the Great had four sons, Aristobulus, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. Sometimes uh, their rule, which was very short, very choppy, and never included all of Israel, is detailed in the Bible. If you see in the NIV the word Herod the Tetrarch, it's one of those four Herods. I know most of you are familiar with Herod Agrippa, who Paul stood on trial before. Well, the first Herod was a guy named Herod the Great. Now, he was not uh, self-proclaimed as great, as much as I'd like to label him with that. History calls him great because he was a great architect. One of the ways that Herod could make a lasting memory all over the world was he built things. The saying in Jesus' day was, you have not seen the temple until you've seen Herod's temple. He took what had been done by Zerubbabel and he expanded it to new proportions. Herod built Masada in the desert. This was a watery oasis in the middle of a desert built on slave labor. I stood there. It's, it's amazing. Herod built things everywhere. Well, do you remember that there was a war, and the war was between Augustus and Mark Antony? And everybody kind of thought Mark Antony would win. Well, Herod was an old crafty fox at that time, and he bet on Mark Antony. And he made it known that he supported Mark Antony. This was a big problem for him when Augustus, the quote-unquote son of God, came to power. So Herod did the only thing that he could do. He went straight to Rome, and the king of the Jews during Jesus' birth, just before his birth, knelt before a Roman emperor and called him the Son of God. Do you think there's a devil at work in the affairs of men? Mm -hmm. Just before Jesus is born, Herod knelt before Augustus Caesar and called him the Son of God. Then, of course, Herod goes back. You can move to the next slide. And uh, he, after traveling there to pay allegiance, uh, he begins to honor Augustus Caesar with buildings. He starts what has become known as Caesarea Maritime. This is Caesarea by the sea. It's on the western side of Israel. When he built Caesarea Maritime to have favor with his new overlord, he put a temple to Augustus there. So every day of Jesus' life that he was in Caesarea or any of the apostles, they were walking through a city, Caesarea, in the middle of Israel on the western coast that was built with Roman architecture. Roman accoutrements, if you will, brothels everywhere, right? Because who wants to go to Palestine if you're a Roman? Well, they found ways to get men to go there. They put a big port there and all the things that sailors do uh, were found in Caesarea and their ruins are still there today. And you know what was in the center of it? A giant temple to Augustus, the son of God. The revered one, the son of God. Uh, you go back one, Joy. During that same uh, time period, he also began constructing Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is confusing to people. If you're, you're studying the Bible, you go, wait, we got more than one Caesarea. We can't keep them straight. Caesarea, sometimes called Caesarea Maritime, is by the sea on the western side. Caesarea Philippi is in the north near the foothills of Mount Hermon. And the reason it's called Caesarea Philippi was Herod began it. He died before it was done. So one of his four sons, Philip, uh, finished it. And he wanted to name it showing a partnership between Rome and Israel to secure his power. So he named it Caesarea, Caesar, and Philippi. It was a way to say, this is a, a joint project, if you will. We have God's covenant people in a joint project with the world. And it was disgusting beyond belief. Uh, go ahead and go to that next slide. This is a picture I took in 1997. Would you, would you kill the light for me? Uh, whoever, somebody, quickly. Uh, in 1997, and it looks like a hill. This is the foothills 
of uh, Mount Hermon. And uh, there's three rivers right here, the Dan, the Hapani, and the Banyas. And what you're seeing right here are stones that have been uncovered that are the base to a temple. And this temple is to Augustus Caesar, the son of God. Uh, go to the next slide. These are in Caesarea Philippi. Um, here you can see how they were set into the wall. And in the very center of the screen, there's an arch that is beginning to come, a distinctly Roman arch uh, in the northernmost part of Israel. And this was the arch that you would walk through when going to Augustus Caesar's uh, cult of emperor worship temple. Next slide. This is the Grotto to Pan. Uh, set in the hillside in Caesarea Philippi like, uh, like a grotto in a wall today, what happened is to create a 3D image, uh, you can't have billboards, you don't have video projectors. So what you do is you cut into the hillside a relief, and then you put a picture of the God that is to be worshipped, and then next to it an entrance. It was a way of like having a red flashing light that says, if you want this, enter here, right? And... Um, Remind me about the entrance, we'll come back to it. So this was the grotto to Pan. Pan, who replaced Baal uh, in, in worship settings. So anytime the Bible says uh, Baal, Pan is what the Romans called Baal. Uh, Baal was being worshipped right next to Augustus Caesar. Okay, They were side by side. Uh, go to the next slide. Uh, Y'all can't see that. That's an artist's depiction of the first century and the way that it, that it looked. And what is on the left side of the screen is uh, Augustus Caesar's uh, temple. What is on the right side in the center of the screen is the Grotto de Pan. And then what follows around the edge, I'll make these available for y'all online. What's uh, around the edge are all of the other pantheon of gods. But the two that were prominent in Caesarea Philippi in the first century were Augustus Caesar, son of God, and Pan. Let's go to the next one. Uh, this was just a placard that uh, illustrated what was happening there. But can you see the left-hand side of the picture? What, what's on the left-hand side? It's, it's in the ground. The earth is falling away right there, isn't it? I mean, it's literally melting right there. Just to the left of the temple of Augustus Caesar, you can uh, go to the next slide, it's a giant cave, and a river runs into that cave. And where this river runs into that cave, it disappears beneath rocks. So you have the cave on top and the rocks below and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower until you can't see anymore. Uh, there are places all over the planet that the Greeks called the gates of Hades. They thought it was in the earth. So one of the ways that they could sacrifice to gods that were uh, supposedly in Hades was uh, to enter these places. Uh, the Jews simply called this place the gates of hell. Uh, and they called it the gates of hell because people who were worshiping Augustus and people who were worshiping Baal or Pan were killing their children. They were throwing their babies in. And uh, sometimes they threw their babies in to have a better life. Sometimes they threw their babies in uh, so that uh, a God would endow them with success in business. Oh, they killed their babies for all the same reason that Americans killed their babies. Uh, maybe it was just inconvenient. And uh, what, the, what the temple to Augustus was most famous for is they sold the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Uh, so the, Augustus was not a stupid man. Not only did he put his image everywhere, he got it out there, the mass marketing campaign, but then he knew what the people really wanted. 
What the people really wanted was a priesthood who had the ability to absolve their sins. It's even said that they could do it in advance. It's almost like we were reading a book about the Middle Ages, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you can absolve your sins in advance, we would call that an indulgence. That didn't start in the 4th century Catholicism or the 11th century Catholicism with the building of St. Peter's Basilica. It, it actually began with Augustus Caesar. That's all the history lesson that we want to get. Let's pick this up in its setting. Turn to Matthew 16. Did I lose y'all with the history lesson? Oh, that's good. Our topic is still the revealed word. If you want to hear from God, what do you do? We pray. We try to isolate ourselves, right? You, you might go if you want to be super spiritual. You'll go off on a camping trip up to a mountain, right? You do whatever you can to get away from every distraction, every influence. I want you to notice the setting that these men are in when they have to hear from God. Matthew 16, uh, pick up with me in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, what a place to have to hear from God, huh? He asked his people, his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Man, is that a fair question? We're now 25 miles north of the Galilean community. You know, Jesus grew up in a little town. Uh, actually, the scripture names him as two hometowns. One is Galilee, the other is Capernaum, because he spent the most time in Capernaum. But uh, Galilee is a quiet, rural town, you know. Um, Caesarea and Caesarea Philippi, not quiet, not rural. Only 25 miles from the Galilee, this was going on. You know, the place where the Son of God was actually born was only 25 miles from where people are sacrificing their babies and worshiping in the imperial cult of the emperor, Son of God. From the time of Jeroboam, Caesarea Philippi had uh, been the center of Baal worship, and so Jews already associated it with something negative. It wouldn't have just been the Roman influence. It would have been the site of um, compromise for years. This is where Jesus goes and he puts these Jewish men and he says, who do people say that I am? And look, they had every God to choose from. It could have been the God of fertility. It could have been the God who makes you successful in business or successful in war or makes your crops not fail. I don't know. He could have been the prosperity gospel God. If you serve him, all your wildest dreams will come true, just like voting for Napoleon Dynamite. It could have been so many things, huh? Who do people say that I am? I like the next question even better. Hmm? Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. By the way, where in their Bibles would they have turned to God to get this answer? Now, mind you, you have no New Testament. You don't have a New Testament for another 140 years, right? Uh, maybe 160 years. So where do they turn? I mean, because the Bible has all of the answers, right? Where in the Bible did it say Jesus, who was born in Galilee, Jesus the Galilean, the carpenter's son, is the Son of God? See, you're not going to find that passage, are you? Uh, you're not going to find that. So where, where do they turn? I mean... Uh, the Bible's the Word of God. The Word of God has all the answers. Where are they going to turn to find it? 
He first asked, who do people say that I am? What are the general facts out there about me? Well, some say this, some say that. Then he made it much more specific. What do you say about me? Now, friends, what happens if this is our backdrop today? What if we have our political leaders as messiahs? What if we have the world religions as alternative pantheon in the hills? And Jesus is here saying, what do people say about me? Oh, well, some say you're the son of God. Some say this, some say this, some say this. But what about you? And it's not a phrase you can pull out of the Bible because you don't have one yet. What would you say? See, you'd be completely dependent on what God had showed you about him, huh? It couldn't be a fact somebody else had given you. It couldn't simply be what I would call tribal knowledge. It would have to be something that you personally had intimate knowledge of. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This answer could not have come from a coin. This answer could not have come simply from reading a book. No matter how good the book was, no matter how much the book is the Word of God, no matter how much it is verbal plenary inspiration, 100% God's Word, the answer could not simply have come from that because that phrase did not appear in the book they had. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Let me ask you an astounding question this morning. If you strip away everything you know about God that you found out from some man, pull it away, every bit of it. You're eroding it right now. What's left that God himself showed you about himself? Because that's the rock in your life. See, because if Zeke told you, Zeke might not have been right. If Kelly told you, Kelly might not have been right. But if Eric told you, he may have been lying to you, right? You know, you've got to watch those preachers. So what if you had to wash away everything you were ever told about Jesus by some man and you could only stand on what you heard from heaven yourself? Because that would be something you could make a rock. That would be the kind of thing that you could stand on for the rest of your life. Amen. And since it didn't come to you by man, no man could take it away. Come on now. Are you hearing me? Yes. This yeah. is how the church of the living God is born, friends. When men hear from God. Amen. Amen. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Or, this is a word play. You are Peter, a rock, a pebble. And on this rock I will build my church. Of course, of course, this is not on the man Peter's life. He died. But it's upon the rock that was just deposited into his life. Yes. I love Peter. You have to hear Wednesday night's message to know that. I can both convict Peter as a coward, uh, impetuous, off base, all those things, and hold him up as a hero because he was both. It seems that God takes an ordinary man and deposits imperishable seed into him, the enduring, living word of God, and he makes him more than a man. This is the God that we serve. And you know what? It was so evident in Peter's life it was forever changing him that the whole world took note. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. What's your next heading say? You get a revelation about the Lord and then the Lord goes and dies. That tests your faith, doesn't it? What does the next heading say? Transfiguration. Come on, friends. 
if your revelation will not stand three days of death and despair and result in a transfiguration of your life, then it's not a real revelation. See, a real revelation stands even when everything around you against all hope, you in hope believe. It's being certain of what you cannot see. This revelation was so shaken in their lives because their Messiah died and they did not expect that, although he said. But it resulted in a transfiguration, a transformation in their lives because the revelation stood the test. And the Holy Spirit of God entered their lives and gave breath to that revelation, power to it, that has carried on a testimony for all of this time. Come on, church. This is where the heart of God is. The heart of God is that He would deposit something in your life, that He can build a church in your life, a gathering together in Ecclesia, a gathering together of those who have received the same revelation and cannot be shaken. I'd like to point out a couple of things about this before we move on. Is that okay? Yes. Amen. First, we have a double meaning. Peter is a little pebble, and yet he's being called a rock, or the revealed word is a rock. But there's another interesting thing. What is behind Peter in the background, presumably? The Grotto to Pan. It is written in a rock. So while the advertisements of the day, the commercial slogans of the day are to stamp money and to stamp mountains and get an image out there everywhere and flood people's senses so that they'll eventually begin to believe it. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to inscribe this on the human heart. I will put this in you. You will be my advertisement. They have written it upon the rock of the mountain and I will write it on you and your life. The enduring seed, the imperishable seed that is the word of God. It cannot be wiped away. Now let me ask you something, friends. You can go to that mountain today and Pan's not there, but we have Peter's testimony, don't we? Amen. Amen. The only thing that will stand in your life when you are gone will not be the buildings that you build. It will not be the money that you amass. It will be what Jesus himself inscribed on your own heart. And it cannot be the work of men. It must be authentically God. Paul Washer says that God gave preachers the ability and the right to preach the salvation of God, to expound on it, but he never gave them the mandate or the commission to declare people saved. And I agree with it. You will know when you are saved. His spirit will bear witness with yours. Amen. If we have to rely on a man or some cheesy doctrine that does not pass the scriptural uh, test to tell us we're saved, then something is wrong. Second thing I would like to point out about the gates of hell. Anybody have gates at their house? Raise your hand if you have gates at your house. Steve got a gate at his house. Cass got a gate at her house. Does your gate attack anybody? No. You got any complaints in the neighborhood because your, your gate went out and subdued somebody, beat them down? No. Gates are defensive structures. The kingdom of God is offensive. It is not defensive. A gate is what you put up when you were scared somebody's going to kick it down. A person is what God uses as his instrument. The weapons of righteousness are in our right hand and in our left. The best the kingdom of hell can do is build gates. And the gates of hell will never prevail against the kingdom of God. God is offensive. He's subtle, 
but he's offensive. He'll take an ordinary man that nobody suspects as being powerful, and he will put so much unlimited power in him that the world cannot stand against him. Read the book of Revelation. There are two prophets coming, friends, that the world will give gifts to each other and rejoice when they finally die because they so terrorize the world. Gates are a defensive structure. Have you been helping to build that defensive structure? Are there things in your life that are actually preventing you from hearing from God? Are there things in your life that are competing with you hearing from God? Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against what God puts in you, but He has to get it there. You have to be able to receive it. You have to be able to grow in it. Sometimes the gates of hell take on religious structure. Sometimes the gates of hell are disguised in religious terminology. Billy Graham's about as Protestant as they get. And he said the problem with America is that it's received enough weak, dead, spiritual, or Christianity to inoculate it from the real thing. And it's true. Sometimes the gates of hell are, are cloaked in the defensive structures of religion. So that you never are actually challenged. You never actually are able to strip away what men have said and ask what God has said because we stay so surrounded and bombarded by all the things that we know were true but never made it in here in a way that we show that it's true. Are you hearing me? Yeah. I hope that the living God is stripping away some of that. I'd like you to turn to Romans 12. We're going to close with just a couple more scriptures. One new and two uh, retreads. Is that okay? Can we have three more scriptures? One that's new and two that are retreads? Are there other slides? I can't remember. I'm not an audiovisual guy. Oh, hey, the setting that Jesus speaks in, it makes a difference. He asked, who do men say that I am with, uh, with the mountains in the background with foreign gods? Matthew 7, 13, uh, about broad is the path to destruction, narrow is the way to life, and few are, are those who find it. Uh, this is what the temple looked like in his day. The entrance is on the right. See how narrow it is? The exit, on the left. Do you see how broad it is? So Jesus standing there says, narrow is the way to life. Broad is the path to destruction. What's he telling you? He's telling you, headed towards the concepts that are taught in here, headed towards the divine dwelling of his name, this is where life is. You head away from it, and it's destruction. Isn't that pretty neat? Pretty clear. Is there another one? I don't remember. Uh, built into the Jewish uh, lifestyle was a reverence and a love for the Torah. That little boy's got the Torah wrapped around his hands. Uh, some people call them phylacteries. He's carrying the Torah, and do you know why the men are helping him hold it? It's not because it's heavy. If he drops it, it's a mandatory 40 days of fasting in the, in the Hasidic community. So they want to make sure he doesn't drop it. But think about the, the message. If you don't have the Word, you don't have the bread that you need to live. So you cling to it like it's your very life. Come on now, you wrap it in your hands. You know what's on his head? It's written in the box on his head as well. Now, as Christians, we've often been taught to denigrate these things, but God told them to do it. You may be able to denigrate the mindless uh, repetition of religious things, but then, of course, you have to denigrate half of Christianity too, don't you? I would at least like to look at the intent that, uh, that was given there. So we don't live on bread alone. I would like just to tell you, that our king was not so hard to understand. He just wants us to ask him. He wants us to ask him in a very personal way. Are you going to uh, Romans 12? Yes. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is one of those scriptures that kind of begins it all in my mind. You want to first follow Jesus? It begins with this. There can be no area of your life, no area of your body, no area of you, period, that is not sacrificial before the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It means quite simply that He's the Lord. He does whatever He wants to with it. He does whatever He wants to with your savings account. He does whatever He wants to with your health insurance. He does whatever He wants to with your children. He does whatever He wants to with your spouse. He does whatever He wants to with any part of your life. If part of you kind of quivers inside when we mention your area, then we understand where we need to go, don't we? This is our spiritual act of worship, that our bodies would be submitted to Him in every way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. When He deposits in you the right pattern... You know, Jennifer was making cookies the other day. I love cookies. Can you all tell? <laughs> and she stamped into that cookie dough something, right? She pushed into it. The cookie dough didn't really have a choice. She applied enough pressure to it. It had the right consistency. So that cookie looked like it had been stamped upon it. The world is trying to stamp something upon you. And today it may not be emperor worship. Today it might just be weekend Christianity. But it's trying to stamp something upon you. And the way God combats this is He puts something in you. Living water, living bread, yeast. He puts something in you and says, resist that outward pressure. Instead, I'm writing my law in your hearts. Let it grow. Interact with me. As our relationship grows, you'll be able to stand against that. In the end, that's not a container trying to squeeze you. It's a gate and you will kick it down. It's a defensive structure. You know why the world wants to categorize all of us? Because then we're in a nice, neat little container and they don't have to deal with us. You could do that if we had a law book, line by line. But we don't. We have a relationship book. And so we can't be categorized because God will speak to a man to do something that has never been done before. Anybody like scriptural precedent? Anybody here feel better when you see it written in the Word? I, Lord knows I do. I'm a pastor, okay? Can you find me a scriptural precedent for spitting in the mud and making an eyeball? But Jesus did it, didn't he? Well, he was Jesus. He said you'd do greater things. Make room in your life for God to speak to you. Amen? Amen. So here we have Romans 12. It said, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Friends, when we're thinking about His good, pleasing, and perfect will, it works like this. The more of His written book his inerrant Word of God you can put in your life, the more you will be able to judge your own thoughts. The more you'll be able to properly evaluate whether God is speaking to you or not. The more you will have a chance for a Logos to become a Rhema, for a Word to be revealed inside the Word. The more even when you're hearing someone else speak, like this guy, you could go, God just spoke to me. So how? It was Eric speaking because God's big enough to do that. And that word just bore witness with this word, and it is God. Are you hearing me? Amen. I'd like to revisit two scriptures, and then Joy, play some music, and we'll pray at the altar. The first one, please don't miss it, is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. Would you describe God's voice in your life as living and active? Because at the time this was written, there was no New Testament, so what could they have been talking about? 
The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Come on now. When is the last time the Lord divided something so slight in your life? This is what you feel, but this is what is true. Joint and marrow. Come on now. How do you divide a joint and marrow? Your leg wants to do this, but if you have to cut it off, you're going to do what's right. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. We have to be very careful that our religion is not just to placate our conscience, that it's not some poor man's version of psychology. The Holy Spirit of God will use the word to judge your attitude of your hearts. Now, what happens with these things, though, is you read a scripture that says, if any man says he has fellowship with me and yet walks in darkness, he lies and does not practice the truth. And the one who is not in relationship with the Lord goes, oh, that scripture's not talking about me. It's selective. It's talking about Jennifer, but it's not talking about me. Of course, the, per the person in relationship with the Lord is looking at the word like it was a mirror. And the first question that you ask is, Lord, how does this apply to my life? See, this is how it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So how do we avoid walking around beat down by sin all of the time? You find that he is liberating you from sin. He's exposing it. He's only bringing it out so that you can get free from it and he provides power to overcome it. But you never get anywhere close to that if you just have a collection of things that people say about Jesus. You need his word spoken to you in your heart or you'll never win the victory over sin. You want to know how many people really have that word in their heart? All you have to do is look around and see how many people are living with sin beneath them instead of on top of them. That's the distinguishing factor. See, when he builds his church in you, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you need to look for an overcoming life. Not one who is free from problem, but overcoming life. Our last scripture is maybe the most important one, so turn there. This is 1 Peter 1, and it's verse 23. My whole heart is that every person in this room would be able to say what this scripture says. The other major part of my heart is that Nothing happens in my life that would disqualify me from being able to say it. Nobody's exempt, friends. If we let faith-killing things in our life and we swim in them long enough, you'll get confused about who God is. I've now been serving Him 20 years and I have watched more than one succumb to success. More than one succumb to the allure, the cares, and the worries of the world. It's an amazing thing. He could say it so plainly in the parable of the sower. And our theologians could ignore what it most obviously says. With all of my heart, I pray that you find the kind of confidence that First Peter talks about. And that you fight for it. And you keep it all of your life. For you have been born again. Not of perishable seed. But imperishable. Through the living and enduring. The end of the day, 
that living and enduring word is in you and you are living with it and enduring? Or you simply have a collection of true sayings? And the difference is eternity. You'll stand your feet.